0: All right, so welcome back to The Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have Shadi Hamid, who is the Senior Fellow at the Brookings Brookings Institution and the Research Professor of Islamic Studies at Fuller Seminary. He is the author of the books Temptations of Power and Islamic Exceptionalism, and his new book, The Problem of Democracy, which we'll be discussing today, is going to be released tomorrow. So Shadi, thank you for coming on. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's start with Problem of Democracy. Can you summarize what is the main thesis of your book and what inspired you to go ahead and write it?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, so so as the title suggests, I do think there is a problem. And uh, this is my best attempt to offer an answer to, I think, to what I think is the fundamental question of our era, which is what do we do when democracy produces bad outcomes? Mm-hmm. Because increasingly, that's precisely what the democratic process is doing. And, you know, I when I was living in the Middle East during the Arab Spring, um, there were a number of democratic dilemmas there, primarily when it came to religiously inspired parties coming to power through elections, Islamist parties, groups that mm-hmm. wanted to um, make Islam or Islamic law play a more central role in in politics and public life. So that was where I saw the dilemma in a very profound sense. But we can go back, I mean, Hamas won in 2006. Um, Islamists uh, were on the brink of victory in the early 90s in Algeria. And so the Middle East has a long and quite fascinating experience with these democratic dilemmas. And I think there's something to learn from those cases. And so I'm sort of in the odd position of Basically saying in some sense, that the Middle East was ahead of its time. And if we look more closely at some of these cases, it provides a preview for what the West is dealing with right now. Um, and you know somewhat to our surprise, I, I didn't think ten years ago that the nature of our politics would become existential. Mm-hmm and we used to talk about policy remember that time when we would have debates primarily about things like healthcare or tax policy or the deficit in our own country here in america yeah i mean we still you know people still obviously care about policy congress still passes right. legislation but when you look at the the hinge of american politics or what what animates the biggest divides it isn't policy it's the who we are questions Mm-hmm. And that is a scary thing. And so back then, if the other party won, it wasn't the end of the world. We didn't like the maybe, but it wasn't as if Mitt Romney was going to end American democracy as we know it. It wasn't as if, um, I mean, Mitt Romney and the Republican Party during that period, they were still broadly within the classical liberal tradition. So, you know, we could live with that. You could have loyal opposition you could see your opponents as opponents and not necessarily as enemies to be vanquished. Now we're at a time though, when the stakes of elections are in the stratosphere and everything feels existential. So much is at stake so much of the time. So we as Americans have to think very carefully about this question. What does democracy mean to us? Mm -hmm. And how do we respond when democracy keeps on producing bad outcomes. And I, I tend to put bad in scare quotes because part of the issue here is that we as Americans no longer agree on what is a bad outcome and what is a good outcome. And that's part of the problem here, that we don't really have any clear set of standards upon which to judge judge that. Mm-hmm. We just don't agree. And that is going to be, I believe, our reality for the rest, you know maybe not for the rest of our lives, but for the foreseeable future, perhaps for decades to come there will, we will not be able to return to a place of consensus. We will continue to disagree on foundational questions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, and I have in my, so I, I'm, I propose something that I, I call uh, democratic minimalism as a way to resolve some of these dilemmas. We can get into that a bit more if you'd like, mm-hmm. but part of, part of my quote unquote solution to the problem of democracy is to reconceptualize the democratic idea so instead of seeing it as a means to other things that we hold dear we have to believe in democracy and treasure it irrespective of the outcomes it produces and that's hard
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean this is one of the main things that that emerges from the book is that america goes into these middle eastern countries sets up a democracy and then, when the result is, as you put it, illiberal, then we freak out and have a problem. So, as you said, like, how committed are we to democracy? Do we value it for its own sake, or do we value it so that you know it's going to produce an outcome that's favorable to a kind of American liberal worldview? Yeah. Um, and as a result, you also mentioned that there's a lot of instances where the American government kind of cozies up to dictators who don't value democracy, but who do have some kind of sensitivity to the U.S. or some you know, some kind of sympathy for the US. Um, But I would want to ask before we go further, could you kind of break down the way that you're using the terms liberalism and democracy because people define them in different ways. So in in the book, how are you using these terms?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, that's a big question. So when I talk about small d democracy, I'm talking about about regular uh, expressing, the preferences or channeling the preferences of majorities through regular elections, Um, the importance of alternation of power, the importance of popular sovereignty and being responsive to voters, regardless of what the voters themselves uh, believe or don't believe. So in that sense, it emphasizes the procedural aspects, Um, democracy as a set of mechanisms for regulating conflict it's not about leading us to any kind of promised land. It's not as if, if we keep on holding regular elections, we're automatically gonna end up at this kind of liberal progressive utopia. In fact, the more we hold elections, we might find that we're moving away from some of those ultimate aims that progressives in this country have or secularists in the Middle East have had, right? And then when we talk about liberalism, um, So, you know, prioritizing individual freedoms, uh, a rights-based discourse, personal autonomy, gender equality, minority rights. And I think that one way of looking at liberalism and illiberalism is that they're on a continuum. So it's not a binary. There isn't one or the other. We gravitate in one direction or gravitate in the other. And I think that the, the rule of thumb when making those assessments is that policies that constrain or restrict individual freedom are moving us towards illiberalism. And if we're expanding individual freedom, then that would uh, that would be more liberal. So in the case of the Middle East, you often have debates around restricting alcohol consumption, sex segregation at certain levels of public schooling, um, restrictions on blasphemy. So the right to blasphemy wouldn't necessarily um, be popular in a Middle Eastern context and religiously conservative society. So if you're restricting blasphemy or what you say about divine texts or the prophet, um, then that is at least somewhat illiberal. Uh, in, In our country, I think restricting abortion is an example of constraining individual agency or freedom. But when we're talking about this basket of rights that are focused on the individual, I think that it's documents like, well, first of all, the U.S. Constitution writ large, but specifically the Bill of Rights that convey the liberal idea, and it's in the classical sense. So, of course, here we're not talking about the modern left liberal America. Oh, look at those libs. They, they're like, um, they love critical race theory or whatever. That's not what we're talking about here. Sure. So, and then I would say more broadly, um, liber- liberalism as an idea Prioritizes the individual over the collective and reason over revelation. And I think there's oftentimes a built in conception of progress. Not all classical liberals would say that, and some would take issue with this description, but I think it ends up being baked in this optimism about the human person. And then we can talk about, of course, the Christian origins of the liberal idea, um, you know, which number of authors have written about, I think quite eloquently, Tom Holland in his book, Dominion, for example. So, and the last thing I'll say, because I think religion is at the center of some of these debates, that liberalism is not synonymous with secularism, but it does imply a restricted role for religion in public life and in politics. And I don't think that's an exaggeration, you know, so, you know, people will say, oh, but no, liberalism allows people to express fully their religious convictions And that's just simply not true. Um, And I think that depends on a particularly Protestant conception of religion, that religion is something you believe in your heart. It's a question of conscience and conviction. Not all religions uh, see religion in quite that way. So when we talk about Islam or Catholicism, then we run into problems there. And I think Rawls here is instructive if we're talking about a kind of Rawlsian liberalism, which is supposed to be more accepting of religion, at least to some extent, when you actually you know, dive into it, he says that people can believe in their comprehensive doctrines, but they can't, if they're arguing in the public space and talking to their fellow citizens in public deliberation, Mm -hmm. they should not use religious justifications for their policy positions. They need to speak reasonably in a way that is intelligible to those who do not share Mm -hmm. their comprehensive doctrine. That, to me, is a pretty obvious and considerable limit on religious conviction,
0: yeah, so first, I want to push back a little bit because will, the main point you're making in the book is that it's possible to have a democracy that doesn't always come to liberal, individualistic kind of outcomes, that there can be this restriction of individual liberty. But what would you say to someone who who thinks that you need a democracy is founded on classical liberalism and this idea that individuals do have the right? Of To vote that there should be a sovereignty of the people,
1: well, many early liberals were not actually Democrats. So they were very suspicious of voting of mass politics of any kind, and they mm-hmm. went out of their way to restrict um the franchise, or that just even wasn't the priority in terms of organizing a political system. And you go back to the founders and um, like, Adams and Madison have a number of uh, memorable quotes on how democracy is bad. Now, it, at some sense, in some sense, they were themselves Democrats, but they were skeptical of going too much in that direction. That ends up causing conflict between different views of the political idea. You know, at the founding of our country. So, uh, if we look at the Enlightenment, you know, uh, philosophers in 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 Europe when liberalism was evolving um, before the American experiment, we see um, really a deep suspicion of yeah mass opinion, that there was this idea that there had to be guidance. There was a sequencing, that first you inculcate liberal ideas and people move away from their superstitions and their mystical politics. And then maybe at some point later on, they'll be ready to exercise, um, more more of a role in the democratic process but until then you got to be very careful because those pious unwashed masses who knows what they'll come up with so this is a perpetual tension and um i think it's been hard for americans to take that on board as an idea because in our own history um at least you know in recent memory you know for those who weren't alive in the late 18th or, or 19th centuries when we think you know Fast forward, you know, democracy and liberalism do seem to go hand in hand. They're part of the American project. They're part of the American rise to um, supremacy and global hegemony. And we just, I think we just got a little bit, um, a little bit comfortable and complacent in thinking that it would keep on going like this. And we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have to choose that if good things went together, they would continue to go together. I'm a little bit of a, I have a dark view of human nature, I suppose. So when I see one good thing, I tend to think that something bad will have to happen and mm-hmm. they'll have to sort of cancel out, yeah. but you can't have, you can't have it all. So this idea that if democracy is good, it will produce good outcomes. That to me is a flawed premise, but I actually think people may not state it outright in quite that yeah. manner, but I think okay. that is kind of how. We, as Americans, at least in in recent decades, have been brought up to understand democracy, that we wouldn't have to make choices that over time, democracy is self-correcting. People come to their senses. There is a sort of wisdom of crowds. Um, but the crowds are not always wise. And that's their right to not always be wise. So sometimes when people ask me, so at the most basic level, how do you define democracy? If I really like if if I really want to push the idea, I'll say, at this base, at this foundational level, democracy is the right to make the wrong choice
0: hmm.
1: and the right to make the wrong choice must be protected.
0: Interesting. Yeah, because I mean, I think about, like I guess the most classical kind of view of democracy. If you go all the way back to Aristotle, like, of course, he's not going to say that everyone should have the right to vote um, because if they did, then yeah, like it would be chaotic. Like how do the people really know? How do the masses really know anything? How do they know what's right? Uh, but then if you look at like more measured critiques like if you look at de tocqueville who you you know you mentioned a couple times in the book um you know i understand what you're saying that like it's okay that we have this ambiguity it's okay that democracy is not always going to work in a very clean kind of uh predictable way but you also mentioned that like in america we have a very hard time with ambiguity we have a hard time with nuance and with things that aren't super precise um which leads to even deeper conflict. So I don't know, could you say a little bit about what you see there in America, like why we have these kind of unrealistic expectations and why we kind of freak out with that kind of ambiguity that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, so well, I think progressives in the American context have a very big problem with this and their name suggests why that might be the case. If you believe in this tele- teleological story of humankind, where I mean, that's what progress, you know. If, and if, but then you have this problem where voters kind of go against your arc of history narrative. And then you have this cognitive dissonance, and you're trying to figure out something either something must have gone wrong. So they were victims of misinformation, of Russian infiltration, that perhaps they were just duped. And if only they had the right information and the right education, they'd come to their census. So we can't even blame them. They are victims of their own ignorance, if you will. And so I think that you know, because you have voters, especially in the case of Donald Trump, and if this happens in 2024, I think it will be very difficult for tens of millions of Americans to come to terms with the result because flukes are possible and his, you know, history is full of accidents and mistakes. But if it happens twice and eight years apart, then it's not really a fluke or a mistake. It it reflects something deeper in the electorate. And how do you make sense of that? So there has to be some kind of scapegoat mechanism. So either democracy isn't working or it's not even democracy. Maybe then the argument is simply that because of voter suppression and Russian involvement and whatever else it might be that the election results in 2024 will not actually be an accurate reflection of the popular will Uh that um this is somehow and you we see this language all the time now even when people talk about the um the undemocratic nature of the senate um you know and all you know and people aren't consistent in their arguments because you know in some sense they um they want majoritarianism so they'll say things like well uh America, if only Americans had their say, we'd have all these great policies, a majority of Americans actually want this kind of economic redistribution, they actually want a moderate approach to abortion, so on and so forth. Um, But then, if the masses end up getting it, like, you know, just getting out of control, then they want counter majoritarian institutions to step in like a Supreme Court that can actually constrain the popular will. But then when the Supreme Court acts in a counter-majoritarian way, but in the other direction, they say, well, oh, this is a counter-majoritarian institution. These are unelected justices who are imposing their will on us. And you can see how this is all incoherent. People are just making arguments that align precisely in the direction of whatever predetermined outcome they want. And this is where I think the question of instrumentalization becomes really important. And I think that Americans tend to be instrumental in their thinking, not to generalize about an entire people. But we think about it, especially well-educated Americans, i.e. the people that we hang out with um, in D.C. or New York or whatever bastion of elite privilege we might be involved in, Mm -hmm. um, democracy is supposed to work, um, deliver. And you can even look at how someone like Joe Biden, who has been very, I think, you know, and, and I think this is good, passionate about the democratic idea when he talks and gives speeches and he compares democracies to autocracies and how in our foreign policy, we should distinguish between those two. If you look at Biden's messaging, it's fascinating. He uses instrumentalist language constantly when it comes to his conception of democracy. So he'll, he'll use a phrase like the utility of democracy. That makes me nervous. What, this is not a utility. This is, I mean, that's not, democracy is an idea, not a utility. Um, or demo, demo, we must show that democracy can deliver consensus. Or that democracy, democracies can actually be efficient and streamlined and implement policy quickly, and we can actually get things done as Americans. And if we can't show that about the democratic idea, then the Chinese are going to have a built-in advantage because in their system, they can get things done extremely quickly because they don't have to go through the deliberative process. They don't have checks and balances or separation of powers. But this is precisely the point. We are never going to be like China in that regard. We shouldn't actually have, I'm very very suspicious when I hear people go on and on about consensus and unity. No, well actually maybe we shouldn't have consensus in this country. Maybe we shouldn't agree on foundational questions. Why should we agree on them? What is the, because those are legitimate differences that we as Americans have. And instead of pretending that we can transcend that, we have to find a way to learn to live with that uncertainty. But that requires like holding, you know, two or three ideas, different ideas simultaneously in our know, like we have to actually accommodate ambiguity, which yeah. is yeah. But that's just also a human thing. Yeah.
0: No, but it's also I think it's a particularly American thing because like if you think about the kind of uh, philosophical intellectual framework of the country, like it's super I would dare to say kind of and kind of Gnostic, like this puritanical understanding of like, there's a black and white, right and wrong, and you have to pick the side. Like this is part of the reason we have a hard time wrapping our heads around nuance about ambiguity, because we feel like our validation comes from being on the right mm-hmm. side. And if we don't make that clear, and if we don't signal our virtue, then what gives us validation? What makes us know that we're good, upright people? Um and you see the kind of havoc this wreaks because it's just not a realistic worldview. But um, <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: but I don't know. Like even when I was reading it, I saw myself having this re- this resistance because I'm like, wait, but I don't know. Like does this? Uh, I feel uncomfortable with the this gray area. This when you say that you know it's okay that not there isn't a consensus that things aren't totally clear. Um, but is it more rational? Is it more reasonable? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely like I have to say like I see your point but there is this kind of this skepticism I have. you know? Well,
1: can you maybe say a bit more, what what makes you nervous about that in particular? Like, Just maybe walk me through your your thought, thoughts on that because I think mm-hmm. it is important to understand because I think that you might be coming at this from a different perspective than say ex-progressive in like New York City.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, like I jokingly, I would say like we should get rid of democracy. We should have a monarchy, of course. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm being a little bit uh, ironic, but no, like I think, in itself like a democracy is very messy because again it's like unless you have a select class of people voting who you know again from this aristotelian perspective yeah like i can see that but in america where the masses can vote um why should the masses have the authority to vote like what why do we even have rights in the first place um i think it does create messes because sometimes the people are stupid sometimes the people are immoral and wrong and it can lead to results that are you know again chaotic that make a big mess um but again i'm speaking as a kind of idealistic millennial i'm speaking from a utopian perspective (laughs) in reality and again like you you say this in the book and in in your other writings that like because you're in america you kind of have to be a liberal a liberal even though you are critical of liberalism So like i acknowledge that i'm in the real world i'm not living in my utopia so i do have to accept that we live in a democracy um but I yeah like I am afraid that um in this reality yeah like it does produce I don't know like I want things to be very coherent and very clear I'm not explaining myself though I'm no, yeah. no that's you, you see what I'm what I'm trying to yeah, get it, like it's exactly. I have this resistance to this messy but realistic option even though I know what you're saying it makes sense and it's reasonable
1: so coherence is probably a nice thing to have yeah but I wonder if you'd if you would feel the same way about coherence, if there was a coherence from the opposite political project. So let's say, let's say I'm, you know, I'm a classical liberal, and then we have a coherent group of Catholic integralists who come to power somehow. I, I, that, I guess that, that's actually one of the big tensions of Catholic integralism is that they seem to be interested in the prospect of power, but there's no there seems to be no legal, legitimate, democratic, peaceful means through which such an outcome is possible because there simply aren't enough enough Catholics to win elections. So, but maybe it could be sort of some kind of, um, you know, joint Catholic evangelical, like soft theocracy that wins elections or let's imagine that. that. That would be coherent, but for me as a classical liberal, obviously that would be a coherence that I wouldn't be thrilled about, right? So from your perspective, let's say hyper woke people came to power through elections which i guess already sort of sort of happened in different parts of the country one might even argue that on the national level you know there's a somewhat woke um party in power that might be coherent in its own crazy way but you wouldn't want that coherence right so in that sense incoherence would be preferable to you if we're looking at how society and politics are organized because too much coherence means ultimately too much concentration of power and not enough checks and not enough diffusion of the exercise of political authority
0: yeah and again like this makes sense it's just on paper it doesn't look very (laughs) nice you know yeah um but i can you say more about the fact that like I find it very interesting that you're able to admit, like, yeah, like you are a liberal. You know, you're in America, this it is what it is, and you're still critical. Um, like I look at a lot of again, a lot of young people who are into this whole post-liberal kind of wave because it is kind of edgy, it is kind of cool. And I know that like when I play that card, I know I'm I'm posturing a little bit. I am trying to um trying to be countercultural. But again, it's not a realistic position. But you do say, like, if you did grow up and live in the Middle East, at least longer term, that no perhaps not perhaps you wouldn't be so say a little bit more about like uh, this position that you take and i don't know how you make sense of the options that we have being in in the us yeah i guess
1: as i've gotten older i've i've come to appreciate more and more the contingency of the human experience we're we're just thoroughly products of our own contexts in ways that we don't fully grasp we think that what we experience is somehow universally um accessible and i just i don't think that's just i don't think it's an accurate description of the human experience so like you know as i say in the book when i think about the counterfactual history with my same genetic makeup and dna but instead of my parents immigrating to the us they stay in egypt so i'm born raised in pennsylvania but my my parents um uh, came from egypt
2: Mm-hmm.
1: that I almost certainly wouldn't be a liberal and, I, and because there just aren't many classical liberals in Egypt, it's actually a, a fairly rare ideological position to hold and it is worth noting that in Egypt if you are something of a classical liberal, it almost certainly means that you have a vigorous distaste for democracy and in fact, the most anti-democratic people that I know in Egypt, including members of my broader family um they they see democracy as a threat to i don't want to say everything they hold dear but that would only be a slight exaggeration um and that was very instructive to me anyway just to say that okay why do they why are they so fearful of democracy it's because of a particular context that they find themselves in are they bad people for um supporting a military coup that overthrows a democratically elected government because that government is led by an Islamist party that they believe will constrain their personal freedoms in some way maybe that just makes them human we're we're afraid of other parties winning when the stakes are existential right yeah. but um so anyway i wouldn't have been i wouldn't i don't think have been a liberal in these other contexts and maybe i i wouldn't even believe in democracy in these other contexts but i am a believer in that regard and you know i i do purposely use the language of belief because for me, democracy, I don't wanna go overboard here. I don't want people to get the wrong idea, but I do sort of see it as a fighting faith, something to embrace, to, to take very seriously as a core commitment that we uphold privately and publicly. And one thing that I proposed elsewhere is so when people say like, Shadi, what can we do? Like if we're on board with this idea of democratic minimalism, okay, what's our next step? How do we share this? Or how do we reflect it in our own lives? And I think the easiest thing people can do is just to make, I mean, I don't want to go over, I don't want to exact, I don't want to overstate this and say that people should write this down as like some kind of statute for themselves, but people can and should, in my view, make a personal commitment, especially ahead of 2024 and say that regardless of what the outcomes are, they commit themselves to respecting it. And as long as so, you might not like the electoral college, but that's what we agreed on. You know, that's the system that we have. You can't, you can't come and say, well, um, oh, Trump won or Biden won through the electoral college. Therefore, it's not legitimate because what should count is the popular vote. That's not actually how elections are run in America. That's like saying, oh, well, um, and, you know, and we see this in, in, in Europe where you have far right parties that um are doing very well and one is sort of on the verge of coming to power in Italy that party won 26% of the vote that's not a big number but there will probably be a far right prime minister in italy for the first time since mussolini and it will have happened through the democratic process not in spite of it
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i don't know i mean i feel like at least in italy when I mean, you see the kinds of reactions to that kind of result like and it makes you question, again, like, what are people's convictions? Is it, like, that democracy in itself is valuable or that it's only valuable insofar as it produces the result that I want, um, you know, but with that being said, like, I I really did feel kind of provoked by what you said about, again, like, you're in America, the most realistic option is to be a liberal, um, because for me, like, I think about, for example, when I read Deneen's book, uh, which, again, you've mentioned before in some of your writings, that, Everything he said really resonated with me. Like I see this kind of people who are anywhere and not somewhere, this rootlessness, like this is my experience. And on one hand, like, I don't like that. Like I see how there is something like it does lack meaning. It does lack substance. And that's something that I do want. Like I want life to be centered around roots and meaning and things that have objective value and not just being kind of anywhere, just, you know, this kind of free for all. But the reality is like, this is America. This is how I grew up and i can't I can't just escape into this utopian idealistic position because it's as much as it's nice on paper, it's just not a real option, so like I accept that, yeah, like I have to say I am a liberal, this is that's the reality I live in. I can't accept um I can't accept it wholeheartedly though, like I have to accept it critically with um with some level of suspicion because if we don't critique the reality that we live in, then we end up blindly accepting all of it and that's when i think we run into trouble like when we don't have a kind of critical understanding of liberalism
1: you know yeah and i totally agree and you alluded to this earlier that i'm sort of a liberal who is critical of liberalism i think that is that's a good position to hold because anyone who doesn't see the profound weaknesses and flaws in what liberalism has become Mm -hmm. i think is missing an important part of the story and i think there's a sort there's an interesting paradox of liberalism insofar as we're all like vaguely miserable about it. We all know that something is fundamentally wrong. We feel adrift. We are searching for meaning, but can't necessarily find it. On the other hand, when we try to think about alternatives to liberalism and imagine ourselves living in them, we're like, actually, we're kind of cool with liberalism. Let's stick with that, you know. Um we're both unhappy. like it's this weird love hate thing yeah um and once you experience the freedom and agency and autonomy that liberalism bestows upon oneself you it's hard to let that go it's hard to then put yourself in a box of constraints and this is why i think liberalism is so powerful as an idea before liberalism ever existed i think hierarchy and structure and constraint actually made people happier. They didn't know there was an alternative and they didn't have to wonder about what else was out there. But if someone comes to us now, as you know, as Americans and says, Well, you guys aren't happy. There's you know, rising deaths of despair, mental illness, there's an epidemic of loneliness, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. So clearly we can see the social ills. And they say, Well, let's try an alternative. But the problem is we already know too much. So we can't return to the way things never yeah. were. You know, so I think that's mm-hmm. liberalism. Liberalism traps us, but it's also a trap that we're kind of okay to be in, at least most people are. And I think this is why post-liberalism is unlikely to do very well in a, in a, just a pure democratic sense. I don't see it winning large majorities, even though the, the Republican Party, if it did win in 2024, would basically be A somewhat post-liberal party but I don't know I mean it'll be interesting to see what that means in practice because oftentimes all it really means is anti-immigration and restrictions on abortion that's not a project per se yeah and this is where I think Christian post-liberalism or ethno-nationalist post-liberalism is much less well-developed than Islamic Uh post-liberalism and I think it's an interesting thing to me why aren't Christian post-liberals in America studying Islamic models a bit more and learning about say the Muslim Brotherhood. there's I think there's a lot to learn there for better or for for better or worse because Islam does have actually Islam provides an alternative in the way that Christianity can't because Christianity does not have a developed account of public law. Um, so legally speaking, what does the Christian alternative look like? You can have Christian inspired legislation that you pass, for example, on you know abortion bans, but that's but you know if you want to talk about, islamic law islamic law does go further than just inspiration there Mm -hmm. are actually yeah um criminal codes and statutes and um, Mm -hmm. regulations on divorce so on and so forth and that are much more specific and targeted
0: yeah i do want to go more into the relationship between islamic and christian you know politics but no just on this whole like liberalism in america no like i acknowledge again as much as liberalism does cut off these roots in this possibility of living uh in a relationship with some kind of objective meaning like i have to admit that you know i couldn't have i couldn't write the kind of things i read i couldn't have a podcast like this outside of a kind of liberal society because as much as i'm critical of what's going on in the society like i have the freedom to say that without fearing that someone's gonna like shut me down or like lock me up or something yeah which is wonderful
1: when yeah i like that
0: freedom i as, as much as i criticize what's at the origin of it like i like to have the freedom and no i'm not gonna pack up and move to a country that doesn't have that kind of freedom as much as i may admire again the sense of rootedness and the the kind of structures of meaning the hierarchies that they have there it's just again i grew up here this is what it is and i have to have to be realistic about that um but then i would also ask though if this is the reality that we live here we live in a very liberal country and that you know the things we see on the right are kind of an attempt to grasp at this post-liberal these kinds of structures of of meaning like it's i honestly i don't see anything that attractive happening on in the republican party like sure trump may be posturing in a way that appeals to some post-liberal ideals but again i think it's kind of vapid and he's he's a puppet more than anything um but for people who want that to recover that sense of rootedness and meaning like what are our options how what are our most realistic options i would say for people who want to not to live this life of total uprooted neutrality but who want that kind of meaning
1: okay so i think there are ways to do it and i sometimes i when we when we pose that as this kind of big question of how do we find meaning i almost worry that we are absolving ourselves of responsibility as individuals because mm-hmm. if we do have agency and choice we can choose to live differently we can choose to live better it's not easy for all the reasons that we're talking about because we're overwhelmed by possibility i mean yeah. you know the, the paradox of choice we i mean this is now fairly well established in behavioral economics that you know, more choice leads to less satisfaction. And that includes lifestyles. We, you know, we look and we have this menu of options. Uh-huh. Even think about like choosing a yoga studio or what kind of yoga. And then you start searching on Google maps or whatever, and you see what's in a five mile radius or a one mile radius for that matter. And you're like, I don't know what to do with my life, you know? So, yeah. but, you know, you're right. but you have to, work. so um, I guess one option is the Benedict option. You know, if for, for Christians out there who want to, you know, go to intentional communities and take that approach that Rod Dreher talks about um, in that book, um, Deneen in Why Liberalism Failed sort of, you know, gestures in that same direction of localist, localism, yeah. that you find local communities and you find meaning through them. I think that he's moved away from that position and we'll have to wait for his new book to see what he lays out as a more yeah. full-throated alternative, I believe is the name of his um, forthcoming book is regime change. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very different than localism yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. So, um, and yeah, intentional communities, having you know, having done some research around intentional communities, um, here, here in the US, I, I remember I was at the Bruderhof community okay, uh, yeah. uh, last summer, mm-hmm. kind of like, um, you know, An- An- Anabaptist uh, community that, um, really interesting and, uh, and I saw their whole vibe. Um, and I was like, wow, this seems ideal. This is like a dream. It it was just, it was like something out of like a movie or something. Mm-hmm. Obviously there's always cracks. Like there's no, I mean, the surface only tells you so much, but yeah, there is something really appealing about that kind of community where all the property is shared. Everyone shares, um, in the daily short chores, um, mm-hmm there is a structure um you know the kids are playing in the yard and no one has to watch them because there's literally no one else on the premises besides people who have bought into this particular way of approaching their own lives that's not scalable though only some people are going to actually have the self discipline and commitment to be a part of intentional communities so i mean you know you just do the we do the best that we can we try to find community wherever it's available we try to develop deeper friendships I think I think marriage and children are an important part of this and I say this is someone who is um, not married and does not have children but you know you know thinking about that more at this stage of stage in my life Mm -hmm. and having just also read my colleague Richard Reeves's book last week of boys and men Mm -hmm. um, which I think really has a lot to say about the importance of maybe not even necessarily marriage but of family, and that the two-parent system um, has a lot going for it. And building that family unit, that is a source of meaning for men. And fatherhood, it provides a sense of meaning that many men in America no longer have, because fatherhood is coming much later. And increasingly, it's not coming for everyone. And that creates, I think, one of the biggest gaps of meaning for men who, biologically and historically, came to have their sense of worth as quote unquote providers Mm -hmm. and if they can no longer provide they feel useless and worthless and for anyone who might be skeptical of that argument I mean Reeves book is really worth diving into for the full version of that perspective um yeah so fatherhood community religion you know I guess we've always known that
0: yeah I mean I I definitely am coming to understand this better especially with like the whole the man thing because when you think about it, men don't really serve much of a purpose anymore. <laughs> you know, outside of fatherhood, like there's nothing that you specifically need a man for because everything's, you know, under a kind of technocratic kind of paradigm, it's like everything's automated. Like you don't need a man to get the job done. Um, and then you see why men are kind of screwed over. Um, and then you have these whole... I don't know, like, I don't want to go down the Peterson rabbit hole, but like, you understand why people like Peterson become popular. I think he's a little over the top and, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's a little extreme. But again, there is this, I think men particularly need outlets where they can be find meaning and do something of value. And yeah, yeah. like I think, yeah, like the Benedict option stuff, I, I definitely see the appeal in like having intentional community, being involved in your neighborhood, local politics, et cetera. I do think the escapist kind of angle of Dreyer is a little unappealing, especially from a Christian perspective. Like the whole point is that you're not escaping, but that you're sharing something with the world, but, but no, but still placing your roots in a local community in a neighborhood. I think that's the most realistic way that someone's going to find meaning today. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And on Peterson, I'll actually maybe take your point a step further. I think that if we don't take Peterson seriously as a phenomenon and And try to understand why he has been able to gain traction with quite literally, you know, millions, if not tens of millions, of young men the world over, and and his message has spread. There is there's even like, um, like a sub genre of community of like Muslim Jordan Peterson fans. Like he, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's touched he's touched a nerve that transcends culture, religion, and geography because the crisis of men and fatherhood is actually a universal one, it's not, it might be more pronounced in America in certain ways, but it is actually something you see in a large number of societies. Mm -hmm. And again, Reeves's book goes through, you know, know, Japan, Finland, you name it, men are falling, and specifically boys are falling behind. So um, when we just say, oh, Peterson, he's this like right-wing crazy person. Oh, he's so dumb or whatever it might be. This is this is this is the problem, I think, with progressives, because Jordan Peterson, you know, he undermines this particular conception of progress, especially when it comes to things like trans rights, which I think is very central now to the progressive narrative, because it is the next step on, you know, in the frontier, if you will. So Peterson to them is basically like he's he's collapsing the whole edifice. So but instead of disregarding him or dismissing him you have to understand why people find that appealing, which is also the purpose of democracy. If someone insists on voting for Donald Trump or um, the brothers of Italy in in Italy, um, instead of saying they're bad, the question we should be asking ourselves, okay, why did they, like, there must have been a reason that they voted for this party. We might not like the reasons, but if it's anti-immigrant sentiment, okay, we might not like that, but there's a reason people are skeptical of immigration and in in some of those reasons are quite deep we might even say that they are quote-unquote legitimate let's understand them Mm -hmm.
0: and that goes back to what we were saying before about at least in the u.s this kind of puritanical need to prove like i'm on the right side so like with peterson people are so deathly afraid to acknowledge that there's a reason why people are drawn to him even if again peterson is not right about everything which again i don't think he's right about everything but i can acknowledge like he has valid points and there's a reason why people are drawn to him and we have to take that seriously but this impulse to just say oh he's horrible or oh trump he's morally repulsive i don't associate myself like why are we so anxious to prove that we're good and that and to the point that we're denying reality we're denying the fact that people are drawn to these you know these kinds of figures and that Again, it comes down to realism. Like, if we don't look at why, if we don't take that seriously, you're just going to make this reactionary faction even more intense, even more extreme. But people can't be realistic because we're so caught up in, like, we have to prove I'm on the right side. I, you know. Um, and, and, it, it, yeah. Yeah. and I was going to say, I'm mm, sorry.
2: Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, that, um, well, you said that about Peterson's Muslim fan base because he put out a message to Christian churches, which I, I wrote a commentary on this week it got half the amount of views as the message to Muslims, which I I just found that very fascinating.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that tells you something. Um, But, you know, on the the Americans and their intensity and mannequinism, um, I think it's worth remembering that we're a religious people, but one that is increasingly without religion. Mm -hmm. And this is part of what religion without religion looks like. Uh, so we, I, I think that there is something about the American self-understanding that emphasizes belief. We're believers, yeah. you know, whether it's in our own religions or um, the American idea. We used to all be believers in the American idea. I guess, you know, probably most Americans still are. But, you know, for the first time in recent years, I feel like there is now a substantial part of the country that no longer believes in things that used to be taken for granted. So then, you know, you have a situation where um, if we no longer believe in certain things, so if we're becoming more, sorry, less religious, and we are also not as persuaded by the American faith, then we have to look for alternatives. Mm-hmm. And that that sense of conviction and belief has to, in a sense, be transferred outward. And it's searching for something to hang itself on and um I think we have that a bit more than other countries that don't that don't necessarily self-define in that way so you know you know I don't know Danes or Finns or whatever they can just be Danes and Finns there isn't like this big like metaphysical like oh my god we are a Danish we are Danish like that without so there's something to be said for not having that people just you know not to over idealize the danes but i'm thinking about this because uh, i just listened to this podcast episode on the danish the wonders of the danish exception on the happiness lab so if you want to become happier or more happy you go to denmark and you see what happens but of course it's much more complicated than that but i think americans even the idea that we could move somewhere else and become happier is itself a really american idea that we we always have to be finding life hacks and maximizing ourselves and becoming better and self-improving and, and all of this. And that's why there's like a happiness book that comes out every other day in the U.S.
0: Yeah. So I want to get into well back a little bit because, you know, there's this Atlantic piece that you wrote a few years ago that I've, I felt like it was one of the most helpful kind of engagements with submission that I've read so far. Um so, I mean, obviously, Welbeck is a complicated guy. His relationship with Islam is also very complicated. You know, one minute he seems to be saying, you know, Islam is the path out of the collapse of Western liberalism. The next he's, you know, criticizing it as, uh, you know, inspiration for terrorists, violence, etc. You know, for me reading it, I thought it was a very compelling apology for Sharia law in, in France. <laughs> I mean, I didn't see. I didn't see any objections there, um, but at least I I want to start with the book itself before we talk about well back. I found it fascinating that like he's a scholar of Weismann, who I mean I think Catholics everybody but especially Catholics needs to read him more because he's fascinating. But he finds that he can't he can't follow the trajectory of Weismann. He can't find himself believing in Catholicism and then Catholicism social teaching. Rather, he's more drawn to Islam and this kind of takeover that happens in France and, you know, in the year 2022 hasn't happened yet. But what do you see there? Like, why do you think Will Beck, or at least the character, is more drawn to his kind of Islamic social vision than a, a Christian or a Catholic one?
1: This is really interesting what you said, because I think I agree with you that the book is not... It's misper—it's misperceived as being anti-Islamic or or anti-Muslim. I don't know if I would have gone so far as to say that it's basically, you know, an apology for Sharia and how Sharia is actually kind of awesome. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm messing around. But uh, but I think it it does speak to something interesting that you can imagine a situation a sort of like horseshoe theory of anti-Islamic sentiment. Yeah, you, you know, being very pro-Sharia can, in a way get you to being and like it's not as binary as one might think um but anyway so i think that what's so fascinating about ulebeck's work um especially submission is there's there's a kind of holy envy there's almost this lament that christianity isn't what islam is Mm -hmm. And then you see this vigor when you look at, and obviously this is an idealization, uh, but you look at Muslims and Muslim minorities in, in Europe, barely anyone is a practicing Christian anymore in most of Western Europe. And we're talking about church attendance rates, oftentimes under 10% now. Uh, I saw some survey uh, the other week that, you know, for, for Brits aged 18 to 24, only only 1% attend Church of England. Uh, like one percent attendance rate for the national church anyway so just to say that like the numbers are really low but then you look at Muslims and it's vibrant and they actually are holding on to their identity and they're yeah it's like and when we talk about like the vigor of islam it can very easily like move into stereotypes about the fertile nature of islamic reproduction and this idea so Uh he does go a little bit overboard i think in submission with the polygamy i think he's just trying to you, you know, it's it's a way to make a point, even mm-hmm. if it's not an accurate reflection of how the overwhelming majority of Muslims live. But there is this like, oh, you know, they are going to be able to reproduce themselves because they still have the family and they're still getting married and they're still having kids, and Islam refuses to be secularized and privatized. So I think that is very like very much a subtext mm-hmm. in um in 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 his work. And that tells us something important about the crisis of confidence that a growing number of Westerners find themselves in, and as you as you alluded to, uh, I mean, the main character in the book tries out an abbey. He goes there and he yes. tries to see if he can have the spiritual experience, but he doesn't, there's this emptiness, he doesn't feel it. And Islam instead is what beckons There's something about Islam, so the abbey is, it's a little bit depressing, it's downcast, it doesn't really, it feels like it's in decline. But Islam feels like it's on, you know, on the ascendance. And I guess we we'll can unpack a little bit more why that, why people might feel that way. I guess you know there is that contrast with Western decadence, if you will. Um, I don't want to overstate this. I have to be careful about how I say it. Um, uh, there's something very, at least in some iterations of Islam, or at least how Islam is often presented, and how, to be fair, how many Muslims understand it themselves there's something unapologetic about, about it. And I think people don't want to apologize. They don't want to, they don't want to. So if you just think about mainline Protestant churches in America, similar maybe to the church of England in certain ways, they they diluted themselves so much Mm -hmm. that it wasn't even clear at some point what it really meant to be a member of these churches, because if you accommodate yourself so much with secularism and liberalism, then in some ways you might think that you're actually making yourself more relevant. But the irony is that you're actually not because what's the point of Christianity if you're just going to be a liberal or a secularist who accepts all the things that secularism and liberalism already provide. There has to be something that distinguishes you. And that's why orthodoxy small O is just, it's, it's more compelling to more people, especially well-educated elites, like in the Mm -hmm. case of Catholic integralism, for example.
0: Yeah. Mm, Yeah, I mean, what I found, like, I find that scene when um, the main character goes to the monastery to be really fascinating, because, again, like, he's trying to follow the path of Wiesman, and it's, there's the part where he, where um, Wiseman says, like, he, I think, like, you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes in the monastery. Oh, yes, that's That's right. Outside. And then it says like no smoking in the house and he gets really pissed <laughs> off. And then he starts to pick up some like book of spirituality by a monk and he's like, screw this. Nature was right. This is like a feminine religion. It's for women. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's hilarious, but it also is kind of telling because there is, um, there is a level of passivity in Christianity. I mean, you know, the crucifixion, the incarnation, like these concepts like you see, yes, there are these very strong objective truth claims, and yet there's this kind of demonstration of again the death of God, the humility of God, which I understand why he doesn't find it very compelling, especially being in a secularized liberal country like France. And I'm gonna take a risk of being a little, I don't know, maybe risque for a second. I think in um, the fact that there isn't an incarnation of God that God does remain very much beyond humans, very much transcendent. But also, I'm going to say the whole idea of submitting to God, like there's less of an engagement with the person's subjectivity than you see within the context of the incarnation, that like you have God as a person talking to people. Like still, there's this sense of obedience to God's will. Like it's not, you know, this subjective free-for-all, but again, there is this engagement with the person themselves. And I think the fact that there is this more like there's more of this emphasis on the the subject, the individual submitting themselves completely to God. You can even see it in the way Muslims pray. Like there's this clear sense of giving yourself completely over to to God. There's something very attractive about overstepping your subjectivity when you live in a culture that's purely subjective and everything's relative. Um, That's what I saw. I don't know if I don't know if you see where i'm getting at with steven
1: you just made a pretty compelling case for islam right there i know
0: and this is why i would be muslim if i didn't believe in the incarnation but unfortunately i do so oh
1: interesting way of putting it wow okay um yeah i think you're okay so you know speaking as an outsider to christianity but someone who engages a lot with, with christians and particularly evangelicals so you know i'm I'm doing this project with an evangelical theologian at Fuller Seminary. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Kaming. in, who's excellent. Um, but, and we get into these very interesting discussions about the Trinity and the, the incarnation and the kind of inherent mystery to the Christian idea. There's this kind of otherworldliness. It's I don't want to say magical, because that sounds pejorative. I, I, I think right. that... Sorry? In a way. You could yeah. Say that. yeah. Where I think that, at least in Islam, as it's expressed in its mainstream form in the modern period, Islam is much more self-consciously rational. And that's a whole other discussion of how Islam moved in this like one plus one equals two direction. Sufism, which was, you know, the more mystical expression of Islam has, has become, you know, pretty much, pretty much, you know, a small minority in the, you know, at least in, in many, in many Muslim-majority countries, and just simply not as dominant as it was in the pre-modern period, Sufi orders and, and so forth. So I think that the idea of an unequivocal monotheism in Islam, that it is self-consciously rational, that you don't have to extend yourself in your understanding of God. So, you know, I think for the Trinity, it does require some engagement. Like, and you have to be open to the prospect that you won't have a definitive answer about how exactly it works, and you have to be comfortable with that. Yeah. And not everyone is going to be okay with that. Um, and I think your point about submission is exactly right. Um, perhaps because of that unequ- unequivocal monotheism, there is this idea that you can't just depend on your whims. There is a lot of room for interpretation in Islam, but within certain confine so for example um you know uh, pork being prohibited
2: uh-huh.
1: like you can there's a lot of rationality in, in islam but you can't rationalize your way out of that yeah. because god you know uh-huh. there's things that are explicit they're in the text you can't really like do your reinterpretation on uh-huh. that um and at some level even if you're not comfortable with something you have to basically trust in god and submit and say look i don't feel comfortable with the implications of X verse, like think about whatever controversial Quranic verse that might come to mind. At some level though, the challenge of religion is saying that I might be wrong and for whatever reason, like my desires, my whims, they're sort of leading me astray. Or maybe they're not, but at some point you have to say, well, if this is what God said, then that is what God said. Now, a lot of things in Islam do, like they do require the engagement of the intellect. And this is where you can kind of reason your way Mm -hmm. to certain proofs of islam if you will um but i think you're right submission and i hadn't thought about it in quite that way i hadn't necessarily heard christianity being described as passive that's interesting to me that you would use that word yeah um and i think part of that also gets into the political implications of our respective faiths so i mean jesus was a dissident against a reigning state he wasn't in a position to govern he wasn't the head of a state or a proto-state that has major implications for how Christianity evolves in its early centuries. The founding moment of religions matter. And that's one of the things I talk about, even in my previous book, Islamic exceptionalism, as the title suggests, I do think that Islam is fundamentally different than other religions and specifically Christianity for precisely this reason. I mean, Prophet Muhammad wasn't just a prophet or a theologian. Uh, He was also a head of state in Medina. It wasn't a state in the modern sense, of course, because, that wasn't a thing back then. But if we want to think about it as um, a community where political, you know, there was a question of political authority and political legitimacy, and the Prophet played that role of being the head of this proto-state or, or community. That matters because if he's, if he's running this, you know, this city community sort of thing, then presumably the Quran has to have something to say about how to actually run things. What is the role of law? What is the role of political authority? So when people say, well, why does Islam have more politics in it than Christianity does?" Well, part of it is just simply a function of circumstance. Prophet Muhammad needed guidance on X, y, and Z issues. And for Muslims, you know, Muslims believe that um, revelation comes from God. So if, if revelation is coming directly from God, God would presumably have to include some legal things in his revelation
0: yeah and I mean it's it is also interesting how in submission he talks about the Catholic idea of distributism which I think it's unfortunate that more Catholics don't actually understand the church's social teaching because there's there's a lot there but the mm-hmm. fact that well that kind of taught he's like oh you know distributism it's interesting but on a week I'm going to throw it out um again there I don't know I as much as again I have my convictions in the incarnation and you know, whatever again i have to admit there is something very appealing about the idea of submission in islam but also i don't know like it's sometimes you don't want to engage your subjectivity sometimes you don't want um i don't know like the fact that um when you like at least when you if you look at john's gospel jesus is portrayed as the logos like there's a logic behind everything like so that again to me that's this invitation to engage your subjectivity in order to understand this god who's presenting himself as a human whereas again in islam it's like there are teachings like the prohibition of pork and sure i guess you can explain it in a rational way but the point is that like this is something you obey despite kind of logical objections there is something very appealing there's something i'm going to say this and take it with a grain of salt but like at least the way Welbeck presents it, there is something extravagant about submitting yourself to God in the way that it's Mm. in Islam. And I think that has really powerful implications for people living in decadent Western societies, because you have the decadent kind of maybe pagan ideal that, you know, doesn't point to any objective truth. It just becomes this free for all. But we could say there's a decadence within Islam that it is ordered towards something. It's ordered towards a, a real objective meaning. And I think catholicism has his own decadence especially in terms of like aesthetics and liturgy but i don't know i just i think will beck has this intuition about islam that again sure he's critical at times but there's a lot there that people yeah. paying attention to and and again then when he turns to sharia i mean i don't know can you can you say a little bit more because i know like there are many different ways to look at it and people have a lot of opinions but at least the way it's presented in submission like what do you see what, what do you think he's actually saying about sharia law there?
1: Okay, with the um caveat that I read submission and wrote that piece years ago, so I don't remember the specifics, but um Sharia So Sharia um it's oftentimes translated as Islamic law, which is fine, but it's actually goes beyond that because when we use the word law in a Western sense, we think about something specific that you kind of look at, you know criminal codes or statutes, and you read a book, a law manual, and you can kind of figure out what the law is in that very direct way. Um, That's not what we mean by Islamic law. So you can't really find Islamic law in any particular place. So if someone's like, hey, I want to read the Sharia, you can't like read the Sharia. That's not like a thing that you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And the corpus of law, it's, you know, I would, I would just remind you, it's like, it's rich, diverse, multifaceted, it's decentralized. So that's also why you can have different legal rulings in different parts of uh, the caliphate in the the pre-modern period for precisely this reason. Um, So there is a kind of built-in legal pluralism, there's four schools of law, that sort of thing. But I should also say that um, Sharia doesn't just include public law, Mm -hmm. it also includes private practice because uh, that's where the law is more encompassing than just what we moderns think of it. So uh, praying five times a day or fasting during Ramadan, that is part of the Sharia. Um, so and so you might recall that when Newt Gingrich in the 20, 2016 election, he made some comment. This is when everyone was obsessed with Muslims. It's just remarkable how far away we are from that. No one talks about us anymore. No one cares, Trump has lost. I can't even remember the last time Trump brought up Islam or Muslims. And now the first Muslim Senator for all we know might actually be a Trump endorsed uh, Republican by the name of Dr. Oz. But putting all that aside, um where was I going like it going? <laughs> Dr. Oz always derails me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let me just you might have to edit this <laughs> okay Wait, what was so what was I saying? Okay, wait. No, so You're saying about Sharia. Oh yeah, New was... yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah, so New Ginrich is saying, Oh, well, Muslims are fine as long as they disavow the, the Sharia and commit themselves to the constitution. First of all, but not I mean like I don't know why that would be like attention necessarily but if if any american muslim disavows the sharia they wouldn't know how to pray and they wouldn't know how to fast because it includes all of this is part of the structure of the islamic path of life so some of the a broader definition of sharia is the path mm-hmm. and that's one another way of looking at it so the fact that there's this path that has guardrails it gives you room but then you know like there are limits That gives a clearer structure than Christianity is capable of offering. That's not even the intent of Christianity. I mean, uh, not to say that Christianity is entirely antinomian, but it is skeptical of law, at least to some degree. You know, um, in Galatians, Paul says, God redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for ourselves. I think that's, yeah. Yeah. Um, So this idea that the law could even be a curse, that the law is a burden, that's also how it's spoken of. Um, And... So that takes you in a certain direction away from law, away from that kind of clear, clear careful regulation of behavior. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just, I mean, it's, just, it's an important difference. And some people might say, well, oh, uh, that makes me think negatively about Islam. And it really just depends how people, like what they prioritize.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, Apparently, you know, as far as we can tell, Islam has been very compelling to people since its existence um and there's a reason for that it offers something distinctive if it was more similar to christianity then like what would be the point the point Mm -hmm. of religions is that they're supposed to be different from each other and they they sort of capture different needs and wants that are inherent in the human person that's good that's good yeah and i think i think most muslims value the fact that islam provides this path
0: yeah yeah, and I, I just want to mention, I th- one of the the texts that's been most helpful for me, at least with understanding Christianity's relationship with law, um, Pope Benedict slash Cardinal Ratzinger, his Jesus of Nazareth. I think the first book in the series, he talks about why Jesus never actually explicitly spells out a kind of law for Christians, at least in the political realm. So I don't know, if anyone wants to look at that, it's helpful. But I do have a last question for you. So you sure. you told me you have not seen any of the TV series Rami. Um,
1: that's right, that's right, that's correct. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I'm I have to admit I'm obsessed with it. I think it's total genius, best series out there right now. Oh wow. But yeah, I, I feel super strongly about it. But the reason I bring it up is because he's kind of making an, a covert uh, argument for Sufism throughout the series, and he's also also Egyptian, goes to Egypt, and that's where he discovers Sufism, and then he finds a Sufi master in New Jersey. But I have to say, I find it very interesting. I know it's controversial, um, especially in Middle Eastern countries, but I think there's an intuition there that does resonate with people living in modern liberal societies that, I don't know. So I'm just curious to hear if you have any thoughts, because there's, I see something something there that's worth looking so
1: so do you think that the intuition is one of structure or one of a more like let's say let's say fair kind of um islam that is more sufi oriented
0: i think there's an intuition about well i'm going to say about human subjectivity about the heart because that's this is what's at least from the sufis i've read and, and at least what i see in the show like it keeps coming back to this question of the heart and like the human being's desire for God, the love for God, which is in, you know, traditional Islam. But I think the fact that there's such a strong emphasis on this desire, on this subjectivity, like that has the power to really speak to people living in a desire that tell, uh, in a culture that tells us chase after your desires, be who you are. But it, or is it towards this objective goal yes. of relationship with God, which that's why I think it's very interesting in our context, at least.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think, you're, you know, yeah, be who you are, you know, find your truth, follow your truth. I mean, all this stuff, they're cliches by now. And they're, they are I mean, they're obviously silly, I think. But yeah, sometimes you shouldn't be who you are. Yeah, you just try to be someone different than who you are. I mean, I don't know if that's like, a controversial claim to make these days, maybe it is. But this idea that you should just be anything you feel like being at any particular moment is like, is beyond absurdity but on on Rami and so just as some background so I did watch one episode out of context with my with my parents it was actually was pretty good but I don't know like the and I've heard people talk about certain plot lines and the interesting depiction of of sex and quote-unquote un-islamic activities Mm -hmm. in the in the person in 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 the person of someone who is a believer and somewhat religious and wants to be a better muslim so I think it resonates with people because it speaks to the challenges of being Muslim in a modern society. You wanna belong, uh, you wanna be cool, um, but you also wanna not lose your faith and how do you manage that tension? So I think it's just great that there's a show out there that is able to speak to that. Um, The reason that I've been reticent to watch it, quite honestly, I'm afraid to watch it in the sense that i'm worried that it will speak it will it will feel it will cut too close and i don't know not that i have any fear of sort of contending with these questions but because people have said oh Shadi, like this is really going to resonate with you but they maybe like they raise the expectations and i guess i'm just putting it off because yeah yeah um i also don't love watching things that have relevance to my work when i'm like i just want to chill and watch netflix or whatever it might be yeah yeah it's like too it's too similar to like what i work on which is Uh like oh what islam muslims you know but maybe after if you said you said that it's you know the best or one of the best series on tv right now with an endorsement like that after we've had this wonderful conversation i'm tempted to give it a shot
0: I'm. I hope I am testing you, and I get why. Cause like I get why, especially with your work. But also, like I do know some people who won't watch it because it kind of shows things that are haram. And in... uh,
2: yeah, it's I'm just it's not too, very sure. modest. And
0: it's like it's not like he's glorifying it, but it's not a modest show by any means. So like I I respect that, but I do think it's a very important show from my perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll keep you posted on that. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, okay. So, um, before we wrap up, I just have to tell people when the book comes out Saturday. I think everybody needs to buy it because you're treating these these topics with a level of nuance that I don't really see, at least not from Americans. And I just think our society is starving for nuance, starving for something that can really engage with these complicated issues. It's not going to take a kind of simplistic uh, reductionist side um so i don't know it was very refreshing for me i hope people will read it but other than that are there anything else that you want to plug before we go
1: um well first of all thanks so much for saying that about the book mm-hmm. it means a lot to hear that um and i guess the only other thing i'd plug is um i do also co-host a podcast yes it it is called um wisdom of crowds which might give you some sense about the sorts of things that we talk about but um uh, me and my co-host Amir, uh we 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 try to focus on first principles around culture, religion, identity, and American foreign policy. So if, if your listener, Stephen, enjoyed this, um, you know, feel free to check us out at Wisdom of Crowds. Yes. Okay. Well,
0: Shadi, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs>